So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the Israelites and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It was to all of the Israelites that he spoke those words, not just the priests, not just those that were working in the temple or the tabernacle, but to all Israelites, and God is calling us all to holiness today. Holiness is the avenue that leads to a depth of relationship with God. The word holy describes who God is in essence. The Hebrew word and the Greek word are both translated holy and they speak of being set apart from anything that is unlike God. God himself in very essence gives definition to the word holy. Isaiah chapter 6 is a majestic description that the prophet Isaiah experiences. Uh, it's an encounter with God in his holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 we read, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. The seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know that phrase, holy, 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 the triplet, the repetition of the word holy is unparalleled in the Old Testament. This kind of repetition was the Hebrew way of expressing the importance of a concept. God is holy, holy, holy. We don't find in the scripture justice, justice, justice. We don't find love, 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 as important as that is. But we do find that God is declared to be holy, holy, holy. And that's awesome. In the true sense of the word, awesome. Isaiah continues to lay out the scene, and he says, The pivots on the threshold shook at the voice of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, this Isaiah passage is the only time in Scripture that a prophet 
pronounces woe on himself. Woe is me. But then there's this amazing turn of events. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth, and it said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Grace. Amazing grace. God did for Isaiah what he could not do for himself. It was an act of grace that made possible what happened to Isaiah. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go. You know, John, in the book of Revelation, describes a similar experience with God's holiness. In the fourth chapter of Revelation, he says, uh, or he talks about a magnificent throne room scene. And he says this, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and inside day and night. Without ceasing, they sing, holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, there's a notable difference between this scene and what we read in Isaiah. And that noticeable difference is that John does not pronounce a woe upon himself. If we back up in the book of Revelation just a few chapters to chapter 1, We read, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head was, and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining with full force. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. John was awestruck in that setting, but without fear. As with Isaiah, his message would go out from the presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy. And we too are sent out from the one who is three times holy to carry his holy message. The Apostle Peter writes in his letter, the first letter, chapter 1 and verses 13 to 16, therefore prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So is our message and are our actions in the world inspired by the one who is holy, holy, holy? You know, it's easy for us to be wearied by the corruption that we see around us, the confusion, the destruction. But listen to these words from the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. He says, consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. He, discipline, he disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the passage that Jimmy read out of Leviticus 19 helps us see 
that holiness is to be lived out in very concrete ways. I'm going to skip down to verse 15 of that chapter, and this is what we read. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. Impartial judgment reflects a judgment that is detached from self-interest and from anything that is unlike God. It is holy, loving, not showing favoritism, but impartiality. Leviticus goes on to say, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Going back to Peter's letter, he says, rid yourselves therefore of all malice and guile and insincerity and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tested that the Lord is good. And the one who asks us to be holy as he is holy goes on to say, and you shall not stand idly by when the blood of your neighbor is at stake. I am the Lord. You know, indifference is not an option to the one who is striving to be holy as God is holy. He goes on and says, and you shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. Again, indifference is not an option to the one striving to be holy as God is holy, to the one who is engaged in holy loving. He goes on and says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, he says. We've heard that phrase repeated several times in the chapter. I am the Lord. That is who I am. This is how I love, and this is how you should love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew's gospel picks this up in chapter 22 the passage that was read to us. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. You know, there, there was a stirring in Jerusalem. Jesus, just prior to this, had driven from the temple 
those who are using the house of prayer for personal gain. Children seeing the love of the kingdom through the healing of the, the blind and the lame saw what was obvious and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. You see, the, the children had no confused motives. In their observations and declarations, they had no indifference. Um, one of the great privileges to speak to a congregation like this is that as a grandpa, I get to tell grandpa stories. And uh, Mary was just with our granddaughter, Charlie, in uh, Maui. She goes to a, a Catholic school there, a preschool. It's a wonderful school. And, and at the school, they're learning songs. And she could remember, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And so she was singing that song at the top of her lungs. And she could remember the cross before me, but she couldn't remember what was behind her. And so they called me. And so I got to listen to Charlie sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross before me. And I said, Charlie, I think it's the world behind me. And she said, yes, that's it. The world behind me. The beauty and the innocence of that child's declaration just warmed this pappy's heart. <laughs> you know, um, I had a sister that I never had the opportunity to meet. Her name was Toby Ann. But my parents would tell me often that Toby would sing the song about Jesus. She would sing many songs about Jesus and her love for him. In fact, the last song she sang before she was killed was I'll Fly Away. But one thing she used to say was, I love mommy, I love daddy, but I love Jesus best of all. You know, when my sister was killed, my dad was so seized by grief. He did not really have a, a living, vital relationship with Jesus at that point. But overcome with grief, he asked God to let him know that his little Toby Ann was okay. And it was when I was 18, I was talking with my dad and he told me he had a vision, the only time he ever experienced that. And in that vision, he just had this strong sense of God's presence and of Toby Ann in his presence, safe and sound. And you know, it was that simple childlike declaration, I love mommy, I love daddy, but I love Jesus best of all. And this experience 
that my dad had that turned his life. And by the time I knew him, my dad was a passionate lover of God and follower of Christ. You see, children don't have confused motives. Children, in Matthew, were crying Hosanna to the son of David. It's childlike innocence that we want. Don't you want that? I want it. That childlike innocence that opens my eyes to see God. The psalmist in Psalm 51, David says, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I remember reading that years ago and I thought, I can do that. I can do that. See, the religious leaders in Jerusalem that Jesus was addressing, they were not as clear-sighted as the children. And Jesus was challenging their motives, the sincerity of their pursuits. The religious leaders saw change happening, and they were losing control, and they were not happy. And so one of them asked Jesus, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus was not entangled in their aimless web of questions. His answer was clear and confident. And his answer would leave all or lead all who would choose to follow to deep commitment and a life of holy loving. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then we have this interesting account of Jesus asking them a question. We read, now the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He's referencing the 110th Psalm. It's interesting to me that he says that it's by the Spirit that that psalm was written. 
There's this action of God in his world that started at the beginning and carries through that period of time when Jesus walked on the earth and carries us on through to the book of Revelation and to the ultimate second coming of Christ. And that move of God's spirit and those words inspired by God's spirit penetrate into our hearts to expose motives that are inconsistent with the holiness of God. What was the point of this discussion that Jesus was having with these religious leaders? He says, if David thus calls him Lord, how can he be a son? Now, sons in that society were lesser than their fathers. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. Sons were guided by their fathers. But Jesus was pointing out the Messiah is more than a son. He is Lord. He was saying, as we read so many times in Leviticus chapter 19, I am the Lord. So what was the point of this little exchange? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This love for neighbor is carried from the throne room of the one who is holy, holy, holy. It is a love that confronts the greed, the selfishness of our world. world. It is the love that is restoring all things to what is good. There's no indifference in this love. There's no partiality. There's no injustice. Jesus was making it clear. I am the Lord. So the invitation that we receive, as did the people of Israel, is to be holy as he is holy. To love as he loves to live a life of holy loving. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a people who are aware that you are the God who is holy, holy, holy. May we not shy back from your presence knowing that we've been cleansed through the blood of Jesus, that we've received grace to enter into your presence, that we've received a gift that we couldn't provide for ourselves, and we can come 
into your loving presence, reminded that you are holy, 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 and then be sent out from your holy presence with holy love to love the world around us. In Jesus' name.